Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1397 <laughs> entitled Intercepted. Ooh. Our podcast title is Buffy the Pod Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> Has to be that. And welcome, Megan. Welcome, Rob, <laughs> to the hour. <laughs> the hour, yeah. Um, I think it's uh, uh, the kind of a day where we shall be talking about Matthew Riley's new, spectacularly successful, <laughs> self-directed, partially self-written movie, which has dropped on Netflix, <laughs> Interceptor. And it is actually number one. I know. Across... Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, actually. I'm looking forward to having a chat with that. But first, we're going to talk about a book that Megan has brought along, whose yes. title is... <laughs> Into Every Generation, A Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts. So... <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, I'm going to be delving into this book today and having a little throwback of my love of Buffy because it's an indulgent time that I'm going to really embrace and then talk a little bit about this great piece of cultural commentary that's come out that's actually releasing in Australia tomorrow, but I purchased this copy. I was in the US recently and so I snapped this up when I saw it there and have read it and I'm here to tell you about it and recommend it to you if you are a Buffy fan. So I'll just give you some of the details first. So as I mentioned, the book is called, let's run that title again, <laughs> Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts. And it is by Evan Ross Katz. He's a writer He's been featured in GQ, Harper's Bazaar, New York Magazine and Rolling Stone, other similar such publications. He's very active on Twitter and he does. he's one of those writers who has formed quite a lot of relationship with people in show business and so on and earned a lot of respect and I can see why with this book that he's written. It's also available, I've got the hardback here, uh, it's also available on ebook and audiobook and it is being released by Hachette here in Australia. As I mentioned, that's coming out tomorrow, June 14. So... The book is a lot of things. First and foremost, it is a piece of cultural commentary where he's going to dig into the show, but he also digs into a lot of the things surrounding the show. Cue some foreshadowing there, of course. If you've been keeping up with the media, you'll understand what I'm referring to there, lightly. Um, it's also a little bit autobiographical in discussing his fandom and his relationship with Buffy and how, you know, it's shaped both him and many people like me of our generation. Uh, it also includes in-depth interviews with some cast, crew and other fans, notable ones, quite a few notable fans. And it's very nostalgic in that way, but it doesn't back away from tackling some of the controversy and accusations that have since come to light in recent years. So Katz did actually start writing this book before um, Joss Whedon's ex-wife published her open letter um, and which has sort of kicked things off um, in terms of a lot of women coming out and talking about their experience working with Joss Whedon. 
And so poor Katz has had to pivot on how he was approaching the book. He'd already had quite a bit of research under his belt and he thought, no, I need to incorporate this into the book. It would be wrong to ignore it. So in my review today, I'm also not going to ignore it, but um, not going to uh, sort of hit the nail too hard on those elements of the book because I think it's also a celebration of the show. And um, I want to emulate how he approached the topic during the writing of the book, which is he did it quite masterfully. Uh, so, yeah, once I started it, I could not put it down. And I think before we dig a bit more into Buffy and my thoughts and me casting my mind back to when I first watched the very first pilot episode of Buffy, we should definitely get into the mood um, with the theme song by Nerf Herder. So let's take a listen to that now. Triple R. Iconic. That was Nerf Herder, of course, with the Buffy the Vampire Slayer theme song. Very recognisable. And the reason we play that was because I'm discussing a little bit about a book called Into Every Generation, A Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts, uh, which is written by Evan Ross Katz and digs into the history of the show, including interviews and other cultural commentary. So before we dig into the book, um, I thought I'd give just a little bit of background. So if you haven't heard of Buffy, it's I, I'd say what? that's fairly, fairly unlikely. Um, the cult show Buffy the Vampire Slayer aired between 1997 and 2003. It had seven seasons and we all have our opinions on the best and worst. Uh, and it was Joss Whedon's first big success in Hollywood. And it allowed him to helm the spin-off Angel and then also create the space western Firefly. And then onwards and upwards from there, as we know, he's had quite a lot of projects under his Belt since the early days of Buffy in the mid to late 90s. And yes, we're going to talk a little bit about Joss, but not just yet. So Buffy the TV show came on the heels of a movie adaptation of Whedon's original Buffy movie script, and that one starred Christy Swanson as Buffy. And it was slightly silly, and she definitely had a bit more of a vapid valley girl approach to the character, and it was, it was frothy but fun. It was overall, I think, not terrible, but... I think in the context of looking at what Buffy went on to become, it sort of is under the the dark shadow of, of that legacy. So I think it gets a bit of a bad rap. But Joss wasn't that happy with the tone of the movie. And so the TV show was an opportunity to break new ground um, for the Buffy character and strike a bit of a new tone. And he really wanted to do right by his vision. So that's he sold his version of Buffy to the studio and he then took on the roles of director, writer and showrunner. Um, even though the network did go on to have very low hopes for the show and did not actually have much stock in it as hoping that it would be a success. Um, and they were proved somewhat wrong. So the show starred Sarah Michelle Gellar, Anthony Stewart Head, Alison Hannigan, Nicholas Brendan and David Boreanaz, plus many, many, many important others. Obviously, I can't name the whole cast, but let's start out with the core crew. Um, and also included some first-time actors and on-screen veterans like Alison Hannigan and Sarah Michelle Gellar, who had been child actors. Um, some of these actors still make a buck or two off the back of Buffy Press, cons, tours and so on, and some of them just live on a ranch quietly with their family and have no desire to act or be involved in Hollywood um, whatsoever. And the book does delve a bit into the failed pilot that actually had another actress cast as Willow that the studio dismissed for various reasons and then they brought in Alison Hannigan to take that over. So for many, it's a top-tier TV show, um, 
and not just top tier teen TV and not just top tier supernatural TV. I think for the time it was airing due to the characters and themes and episodes like Once More with Feeling and Restless, The Body and Hush that experiment um, quite quite boldly, I think, um, with what's possible on TV. Because, uh, you know, this isn't streaming. This is network TV. This is an episode that people will see on their TV and, you know, it's all silent or it's got it's all a musical or so on and so forth. And I think we underestimate how surprising that might have been for the time. So that's a little background on Buffy. And I will talk a little bit more about my personal relationship with Buffy. But, Rob, I'm keen to hear your – I'm a big Buffy fan and always have been, always will be. What's your relationship to the Slayer? Well, at the time, I actually re- was fairly well-placed to understand that it was part of a continuum mm. of – female action-led television shows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because, you know, it did make a big splash, but there was also Xena Warrior Princess. Yes. There was, you know, going back, um, there was a, an Anne Francis TV series oh. back in the back in the day. Mm. Uh, you know, there was a lot of Asian shows um, which had female action heroes. But Buffy was something special. It actually caught the zeitgeist of the time. Yeah. And... It knocked, it knocked me out. Buffy knocked, <laughs> Buffy knocked me out continuously. And it also really impressed me because it had one of my – and I keep saying this, I really am not in tune with watching high school-based mm. shows, but throw in some genre, yes. some vampires and monsters and robots and everything else that Buffy had, yeah. and I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I think is such a great example of kind of the – broad appeal or the, what could have been the broad appeal of the show at the time. So for me, it's, you know, will always have a place in my heart. I have a lot of love for it. I watched it as a kid and then it was like part of my formative years. So as I grew up, um, I watched the pilot the very first time it aired on network TV. Um, and I think it was on channel seven and every single episode after that I taped. So even after they moved it to 10 PM, um, I recorded it on VHS. I rewatched every episode over and over. I know all the episode titles. Um, and, yeah, like I said, I kind of grew up with the show in a way. Did you do the merch? Oh, yes. No, I definitely bought, like, I remember when the soundtrack first came out on CD. I had that and they had, like, behind-the-scenes books talking about Buffy. There was a series of novels that came out and all, you know, clatter rings, very loads of those, loads of cross necklaces, all the, you know. And, of course, um, Zero G's relationship with it ha- has been extensive because, uh, you know, this is like, uh, what was it, say, the 90... 97 was 97. season one. Well, we started in 94. And Gosh. we covered season by season of Buffy mm. and then Angel. And yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and, of course, eventually did interview Joss Whedon when he came out for his uh, Serenity tour. Yeah, right. And that would have been 2000-ish, early 2000, mm. something like that. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, really when he was starting to ride the wave and had had success with, you know, these other shows. But um, so all of that context there, um, this book really moved me. So I think Evan Ross Katz, who's the author, he also, he's a big fan. He gets fandom and he's very passionate about the show and it gets excited about the same things I get excited about. And it made me remember all the things that I loved and kind of remember the first time I saw some of the episodes and some of the things. And um, while I was reading it, it really, it was kind of like a rewatch, but it also made me want to rewatch the show, obviously, um, which I've not done for a little while. 
Uh, so, yeah, I think it is legitimately one of my favourite shows of all time. I think there's a difference between what I deem to be the best TV and what's my favourite TV because, yes, there are shows that have made big strides in cinematography and narrative and arguably have more, like, gravitas than a show like Buffy. So if I had to name some of the best TV, um, you know, you'd list off the, the usual suspects, Breaking Bad, Fargo, The Wire, True Detective. And, yes, they have, like, an elevated cinematic quality and they kind of reshaped what people thought TV could and would do narratively and stylistically. But I also think that there's TV that you can love and there's TV that pushed boundaries for its time. And I think that that's Buffy for sure. Absolutely. And it's something I could watch anytime. I have an emotional connection to. And as the book outlines, it had an impact on TV watchers and people of my generation that I think is often understated or underestimated given the just sheer amount of great TV we have at our fingertips now. Um, and I think at the time as well, because it was a teen show with vampires, people kind of dismissed it. I, I would like to say it also pushed the envelope with vampire procedural as well. Oh, tell me more. Well, you know, I mean, before then, I don't think that we had quite so sympathetic a portrayal of vampires, <laughs> but yeah. also juxtaposed with a really brutal understanding of what their, you know, method of operation was mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the fact that they basically were serial killers in a lot of cases. Yep. So, you know, they didn't give you that um, that narrative where they have to redeem the vampires every yes. time. And there was, there was some clear boundaries drawn. It was also a remarkably non-religious show. Yeah, I think it's very much about... There's some allegories there, yeah. but I think you're right. It's very interesting the way they approach the redemption arc. And I also love the fact, you know, this is a show you could watch and they would answer, you would have questions as you moved along. Yeah. And they would answer questions. You know, like around about season four, I'm thinking, how the hell does nobody in the rest of the United States know about what's going on in this small town? And then... And then we've got this entire underground military base because they are monitoring it. Yeah, yeah. So I think... That, to me, that's great. But then the, the thing that really stands out, apart from the, the great chemistry between the actors... Absolutely. ...is the dialogue. Yes. You know, it's yeah. witty, it's clever, it's it's impactful. Yeah. And, and then, of course, there's, there's those favourite episodes that everybody has, like... Um, the body, the one where, they, where Buffy discovers yep. the body of her mother at home. Yeah, you know, it's heartbreaking. And we've all been through something similar to like that in our lives, um, perhaps not with the resurrection aspect of it. No. <laughs> but, you know, the – and I said perhaps because zero-G <laughs> listeners, you know, you just don't know. Um, and that, that was such a powerful piece of yep. television that was the – match of anything as groundbreaking as some of the stuff that you used to see in MASH. Yeah. You know, those iconic moments of television. Yep, yep. I totally agree. And I think that it was doing it on this level where the audience was teens as well and it was starting to really, I think, introduce a lot of ideas that maybe people, in a way where it was disguised by this monster of the week um, format. Because I know there was episodes that delved a bit into like domestic violence between couples that are in high school, um, addiction. There's definitely a lot of addiction themes and other things like that. And I think the beauty of the show is it starts out a bit monster of the week, 
but the more time you spend with it and the more time you spend with the characters, you really realise that it's growing and that it, you get so much more payoff once you've spent time in this universe with the characters, with the stories. It's it's so much more than just vampires and zombies. <laughs> um, but speaking of pushing the envelope, um, maybe we'll take a brief uh, music break before I dig into a little more exa- about exactly what this book is. And so I think we'll get a track from the musical episode, Once More with Feeling. This is one of my faves, uh, and this is Walk Through the Fire. And this is by the Buffy the Vampire Slayer cast. Let's be bad guys. Hi, this is Joss Whedon, creator of Serenity, Buffy, and Angel. Welcome to New Melbourne, home of fish, fish-based activities, and Radio 3 Triple RFM. Triple R, it's independent radio, and it aims to misbehave. Yes, this is Zero G. I am Megan McHugh. Rob Jan. <laughs> and that was, of course, Walk Through the Fire by the Buffy the Vampire Slayer cast. And the reason we played that was because we're talking about the book. Oh, I have to take a deep breath every time I say it. Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts by Evan Ross Katz. So what is this book? So... It does start off by introducing – it's about Buffy. <laughs> That's it, the end. Um, no, it starts off by introducing a personal aspect of Katz's love for Buffy, his, you know, relation, long-running love of Sarah Michelle Gellar. But it also tells the, um, the reader that every episode, theme, controversy and element of Buffy that they want to be covered as part of the book will be. And it is. I have to say, I got everything I wanted and more from this. We don't agree on the best episodes or the best seasons, I don't think. But <laughs> that's okay. That's, that's you know, not everyone can be aligned. So now it is separated into chapters that tackle um, various big themes, ideas, uh, seasons and tidbits of Buffy history. And it's peppered through with interviews and anecdotes from the cast, crew and fans. And that's obviously what elevates this book, I think, is actual access and words from people who worked on the show. And that's also very pivotal when it comes to some of the uh, things that Katz unpacks with respect around Joss Whedon and the set, what the set atmosphere was like and his uh, professional decor. Yes, conduct. There you go. Exactly. Bingo. Um, so said interviews include words from Sarah Michelle Gellar herself, Charisma Carpenter, James Masters, Anthony Stewart Head, Nicholas Brendan, Seth Green, many more, um, and writers Douglas Petrie, Jana Spenson, so on um, and so forth. There are some notable absences, Joss Whedon being one, declined to be interviewed don't think anyone's that surprised by that one. So Katz also connects with other fans and discusses the cultural influence of the show on them and the personal and societal impacts that it had and how the legacy has shifted in current years. So if you're someone, a fan who's grappling with, I mean, many of fandoms are grappling with the creator's behaviour, but if you've been grappling a little bit with it, I think this is a great book for you because it does not shy away from tackling it, but it also doesn't make it more of a focus. There's as much celebration as there is criticism. So um cats explores everything the show did well and that includes um its approach to queer themes uh the relationships between characters and so on but also places um thematically that it fell quite short uh diversity is a big one here Mm. uh the very dismissive and somewhat uh stereotypical portrayal of kendra who was um uh the black slayer and 
interesting perspectives on that uh, character and both pros and cons of that character's inclusion, how it was portrayed at the time. Um, he also discusses episode and season highlights and lowlights. And yes, he does talk about the accusations against Joss Whedon and has some words um, of cast thinking back to that time and speaking however much they're comfortable with and uh, talk a little bit about the atmosphere on set and also other controversies that came out about the show while it was airing um, around Sarah Michelle Gellar's conduct on set and things like that. And you start to realise exactly the role media plays in in shaping these uh, these things. So I think what I found interesting was you do get an appreciation for how much hard work it would be to be an actor on a long-running TV show, especially one that gets very, very successful and not least one that uh, has a very core central character. So I think it would have been quite hard from the sounds of it for Sarah Michelle Gellar herself but also other cast members. Um, and how it's very top-down, uh, the energy and dynamic on set could make it amazing or a hellish experience and a lot of that comes down from the top, right? So um, it reminded me of how great Sarah Michelle Gellar was as Buffy and I think as much as it couldn't have been Buffy without Joss Whedon's input, obviously it's his vision and I think no one's contending that he's very talented. Um, but it also couldn't be the same show without Sarah Michelle Gellar. Uh, and I think part of the fact that that is the case is maybe some of the tension on set. Well, I was just noticing when you played the, the song from Once More We're Feeling, how well she pushes forward to sing, and not a singer at the time, and mm. surrounded by cast members who actually were singers. Yeah. You know, she's carrying that show. Yeah. Leading lady, mm. a fairly young person. Yep. Obviously for the for the story. Yeah. And really just amazingly moving it forward through the whole arc of the whole series. Yeah. Means you're on screen a lot. There's massive amounts of longest hours. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my my hat always goes off to her. That is an amazing body of work that she put in there. Yeah. It's just something that will stand in genre history. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you think about episodes like The Body, which we talked briefly about before, like she's hitting emotional places that should be applauded, um, regard, you know, like regardless of the show, the context or whatever, like that's some fine acting. And there's many examples of her fine acting in this whole series. Oh, and also we were talking about how hard it is to make one of these shows. Think about the fact that they split their attention and created Angel, the spin-off series running yeah. parallel. And that's and really double the, the, the pain for everybody as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think, like I mentioned, the book, it's not – it doesn't pull any punches um, and Katz does a really good job of teasing out information and letting some of the interviews speak for themselves. And so you get a sense of the actors as people <laughs> and uh, – there's a lot to read between the lines. So you learn a bit about how it was Mark Lucas's first acting job and the pressure he faced between that and also being the new love interest post-Angel, which is a lot of pressure. Oh, Riley. Yes, Riley. Riley, yeah. Yep. Uh, about the clicky nature on set, Whedon's power plays, Anthony Stewarthead's role. Um, he kind of seems to have this rose-coloured rose glasses kind of on-set dad 
energy and I think there's probably a lot that went on. It seems that he just was unaware of, which he self-proclaimed. Uh, he's British. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, details of like an onset run-in between James Masters and Joss Whedon from James Masters himself. So it, this is the thing as well. A lot of, Some of this is first-hand, which makes me feel a bit better about some of the topics it's covering too because it's not conjecture. Yeah. It's um, people feeling comfortable to say whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So I think as well... Um, the book takes you back and sets the scene of the time, uh, what was being done, what wasn't, who had power and what that looked like. And, you know, you start to realise, yes, that the audiences were responding to the risks it was taking, the script, like you mentioned, the dialogue, and some of the stylistic and um, thematic places that it was going, basically. So, I mean, to wrap up on that, so the book is called Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born. It's going to be out tomorrow, in fact. And if you love Buffy, you should absolutely read the book. I thought it was both joyful and challenging, and it was as much a celebration as it was something that wanted to acknowledge uh, everything that has happened since the show came out. It's very well written, in my opinion. It's sharp and thoughtful, and it brims with a lot of respect and love for the show. And it has photos, a photo section. It does. I love a good photo section, that shiny paper. And as I mentioned, Cats doesn't shy away from delving into its failings as a show when it comes to diversity, its role in white feminism and some of the storylines and elements that just would not fly today and shouldn't fly. And not least looking the whole weed and controversy straight in the eye and tackling it as much as is within his power. So it's written by a fan and I really felt that, but a fan who had the ability to create a rapport with a lot of the interviewees, bring forward history and tidbits that was super interesting as someone who was interested in the behind the scenes element as well of making a show like this. Mm-hmm. And my final word would be, obviously these things are complicated. We're always talking about separating art and artist. It's this ongoing challenge. And sometimes you can't or shouldn't. Um, but from my perspective, the show was built by a lot of people, not just one man. Um, and the cast, the crew, and also the fans are part of that legacy. And I realised how much work went into the show, blood, sweat, tears. And um, the book lets you examine the shadows but also embraces the light and what the show means to so many people, how timeless some aspects of it are, you know, all the ground that it broke and how much fun it is and to not, really love and, it. And not, and not just nightly in the cemetery. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and my last hot tip is Katz asks Sarah Michelle, Sarah Michelle Geller who she would want to see playing Buffy in or, a, you know, centre of another Slayer show. And I'm not going to say who she says, but I totally agree with the person that she suggests. <laughs> You'll have to tell me off air. because I'll tell you off air. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so definitely pick up that book if you are a Buffy fan or even a casual Buffy watcher. (laughs) Watcher. (laughs) 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 Um, It's Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born by Evan Ross Katz. The only question I have is why on the cover uh, doesn't Sarah Michelle Gellar's Buffy character why is she not shown in full? Where is the face? Uh, it's all about the, the mystery, <laughs> the mystery. <laughs> leaving okay. something to intrigue. Not a copyright? <laughs> Maybe. Because yeah. it is a piece of art too. It's not a photo. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I really love the book and I definitely recommend it. So mm. to head out and before we head into our next discussion of Interceptor, I'll just play one more track from Buffy. This is from one of my fave episodes. Um 
Well, no, that's a lie. This episode is an okay episode that has some great scenes in it. So we're going to listen to um, Wild Horses by the Sundays, which is from the prom episode where Buffy gets her class protector award, which is a top tier moment in um, Buffy history. So let's take a bit of a listen to that. This is C. Montgomery Burns speaking. I know you're a layabout and have no job because you're listening to 3 Triple R. Now get to work. Find something to do. Hmm. We've just been delving into a Buffy the Vampire Slayer book. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to have a look at a Matthew Riley-directed film called Interceptor. Yeah. But first I just wanted to mention that the ABC FM channel did its Classics 100 countdown over the weekend, which is a, 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 a listener poll where... You put in your top ten pieces and they mm-hmm. do an aggregate and, you know, you get your top 100. And it's no surprise at all that genre, science fiction, fantasy and history, figured prominently amongst the <laughs> listings. Good scores, some good scores. Absolutely. And number one was Star Wars. Surprise to no one. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they also expanded it this year because it was screen sound, so they had more than just movie soundtracks. They had television show nice. and video game soundtracks. And I will go down and do a breakdown of this in future yeah. episode of Zero G because I was actually interested in the way it turned out. Yeah, and we can play, I mean, great opportunity to play some great scores. No, nah, we're not going to repeat their, their selection. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, anyway, that's for another time. So... Onwards to Interceptor, mm. which is a film that's dropped on Netflix. Yes. It did have a brief cinema run here. Mm-hmm. Might actually still be on, I'm not sure. They've released it at the cinema you know, just before the Netflix drop, which means it'll be eligible for the Oscars, I guess. <laughs> oh, Rob. Hey, you know. <laughs> All right, it's um, directed by Matthew Riley from a screenplay. He co-wrote that with Stuart Beatty. Mm-hmm. And before I get to Matthew, just to tell you that uh, Melbourne-born Stuart Beatty, he's known for his work on the Pirates of the Caribbean series, yep. uh, G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra. Mm. <laughs> okay. Chuckle, okay. Uh, Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan, which is probably a good oh, okay. um, yep. you know, stylistic sort of match for this Interceptor movie. Yep. And three episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hey, there you go. Mm. And Matthew Riley, of course, <laughs> Sydney-born, uh, uh, sorry, Melbourne-born, I think. Was he Melbourne-born? Uh, Australia-born. <laughs> Sydney-born, yes, okay. <laughs> Is uh, He's a, a, an Aussie action thriller writer. He wrote and self-published initially his first novel, Contest, at the age of 19, Oof. which was picked up by Pan Macmillan after, literally after an editor found a copy in a bookstore. Wow. Um, not looked back since in terms of that. Seven million books sold worldwide. Frequently tops local and overseas bestseller lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, six standalone novels or something like that, more or less. Uh, two of which, Contest and The Great Zoo of China, are my favourite Matthew Riley books. Oh. Uh, Great Zoo of China is just incredible. You know, <laughs> so over the top. He's got his Shane Schofield and Jack West series uh, and... You'd think there'd be a movie made out of one of his books because there've been, you know, been options and and they lend themselves too to yeah, a big blockbuster. Yeah. Look, he's a fan of Michael Crichton. Yes, and okay. full on, you know, techno thrillers. Yeah. Basically, it's expensive, in other words, to make into a movie. Yeah, very big budget films. The closest he's got, I thought, was uh, a television series called Literary Superstars, which had Jenna Elfman <laughs> signed as the lead. 
got hit by the 2007 writer's strike and eventually dropped. Mm. So, and he has done his own audio adaptation of Ice Station. Oh. Uh, and, you know, He's is, a go-getter. I've uh, got to admire his chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, so he, he sort of pitched this one, started this one out in 2017. So like a budget of $15 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, And, you know, eventually when he got um, Stuart Beatty on board and there's more sort of interest shown, yeah. uh, Netflix funded it. Yeah. And, you know, then Chris Hemsworth got involved and and... Uh, Chris Hemsworth's wife. I'm not going to. Um, I should really. I should have done it the other way. Yeah. I apologise for that. I should have said Elsa Patake got involved, mm-hmm. and you know, her, dragged along her, her. husband. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know, but Netflix obviously with its um. And now what was that film that we did? Extraction. Yes. Yes. So with Chris Hemsworth, big hit for him, and they obviously, I think, their vibe was we want them to be involved in this because we think that will help you know, promoted on the platform, how about they get involved? And I think Matthew was like, sure. Yeah, it does, actually. And, you know, the the idea of this, it's got all of the typical Matthew Riley tropes. <laughs> what is the plot, Rob? What is the plot? It's pretty simple, basically. There's two... It's it's set in the obviously the near future. Mm-hmm. There are two U.S. missile bases, yes, anti missile bases, I should call them interceptors. Hence yes. the title. Mm-hmm. These two sites are tasked with intercepting any foreign nuclear missiles that head towards the United States. Mm-hmm. It could be anybody mm-hmm. at all, but obviously they're worried about Russia uh, at this stage in the in the story. That's who it's. The, main antagonists are. There's one called Fort Greeley and that's in Alaska mm-hmm. and then there's another one that's in the an undisclosed location in the Pacific Ocean. So yep. it's kind of like an oil rig platform yep. Yep. that floats. Mm. God, uh, terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> this is a ratty idea. Yeah. Let's be honest. You know, it's militarily suicide to sort of base everything upon these two things. And yet, when I say that, you know, most... A lot of reviewers won't get past that. They'll go, this is absurd. But I'll just give you one word, the Maginot line in, you know, in, uh, in the war, which, who's, I, sorry, in World War Two, uh, and the idea was that it would be a big French ah. line of defence with in-depth, you know, barbed wire, concrete forts, underground tunnels to link, all right. that sort of stuff. Which, of course, the enemy just bypassed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So tell me that this is absurd after we finished actually doing it in real life and having it all go wrong. So, you know, there is that. And obviously uh, one of these bases is going to be taken out fairly quickly, mm-hmm. which means it all falls upon one, the, the remaining one. Yep. And most of this film pretty much is shot in that one base, in that one set, which gives you that $15 million budget, it, it makes it go further. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great idea, actually. I love that. In, as an exercise in, uh, in low, lower budget filmmaking, and $15 oh. million is actually low budget for this kind of film. It's Absolutely. incredibly low. Uh, it, it's a great idea. And then we have the human element into it because it's not just going to be a missile base sitting out there in the ocean by itself. No. Uh, Captain J.J. Collins. Mm-hmm. She's been reassigned to the Pacific base. Yep. She's had a, a terrible, terrible moment in her quite successful military career where she's been sexually harassed by mm-hmm. a superior officer. Yep. And this is, although she won the case, yep. this is where she's ended up. Yes, whose career actually got ruined and it was hers. <laughs> although when you think about it, 
this is possibly one of the most important bases that they'd have. Being assigned to this, I would not think was actually a bad thing. You would hope they'd put some grade A people there rather than, you know, the mm. washouts, but... Yes. <laughs> so, okay, uh, JJ Collins is played by Elsa Pataki, mm-hmm. and she is a well-known actress, actually, in Spain. And also in the West as well. Actually, Spain counts as the West, sorry. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she's been in Dario Argento's uh, Giallo in uh, 2009, uh, Snakes on a Plane, <laughs> and also plays the character of Elena Neves in Fast and Furious. Oh, In that okay. whole franchise. Yeah, good for her. Uh, she's been in a, a noir movie, a, a neo-noir movie, Give Him Hell Malone and uh, the Spanish film D.D. Hollywood and was cast in the, the uh, television series Queen of Swords huh. as, and I love the name, Senora Vera Hildigo. So, you know, she's been in lots of these different things. And, of course, you know, obviously hanging around with Chris Hemsworth on some of the Thor movies and stuff. Uh, she stood in for Natalie Portman in the post-end credit scene in Thor The Dark World. Oh, that's <laughs> so, right, because they couldn't get her back. <laughs> yeah, so... And she was also in that... Um, I don't know if you've seen this, that web series, uh, Tidelands. Oh, no, heard of it, though. Mm. So lots of different things. And that was a Netflix show. So obviously there's been some synergy here and some yeah, right. rolling along. And Chris Hemsworth is an executive producer of um, Interceptor as well. Yeah. As having and let's let's, let's let's is this a spoiler? No, not no, because really. this movie's already a little spoiled. <laughs> he has a uh, uh, given his Thor connection a hammer yo mm. in this film, uh, a, a, an oversized one. I think yes, we can well, agree. It's Thor, you yeah. know. <laughs> but just ugh, he is worthy. <laughs> Uh, she's great in this. Yes. It's a role that calls for a lot of physicality. Yep. It's basically a, um, a John McClane diehard role. Yeah, and she does a great job. I, I believe her in the role. And yep. like you said, I think she's got the physicality. She's a tough cookie. And um, I thought that she did the action stuff really well. Yeah. I think all of the fight scenes in this, they, they really play out quite well. Yeah. Perhaps a little bit absurd when she faces this giant of a, of a, a bad guy. And yeah. you're thinking, yeah, I mean, you know, you could do what you like, but then she has a special trick, so that's yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and you know, I was watching this quite closely, and I love the fact that they show that getting shot in a flak jacket, you don't just shrug that off. Oh, it's painful. Yes, yeah. it's, it's uh, like being hit with Molnir in yeah. the chest, you know. Yeah. And that sort of thing, I thought, was really well done. They even give her a logical reason for taking her her jacket off. You know, to get John McClaney. Yes, of, to get her, you yeah, know. To get her into play as, a, as an action hero. Her Sigourney Weaver outfit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think she's great. I, I, she could easily headline bigger action movies than this, I think. And yeah. she's got this wonderful uh, Spanish accent in this. Um, she's The actress is multilingual, mm. amazingly multilingual, so mm. many different languages. And it kind of makes sense. They, they do it in the way that Sean Connery gets away with being – with his Scottish accent in The Hunt for Red October, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, so yeah, it's like yeah. They give you a little sort of thing there. That's all right. <laughs> Fine. And so, yeah, absolute props to her. Totally believable. Uh, Luke Bracey, uh, Australian actor, plays the, uh, the villain of the piece, mm-hmm. Alexander mm-hmm. Kessel. Mm. Remember that name? <laughs> yes, the Kessel Run. Yes, he's and he's he's so amiable in this. He's a an amiable sort of villain. 
No, there is a very much a, um, a diehard thing going on here. Yeah, it's meant to be the, you know, face-off, the predator and prey, but which way is it going to go and all of that kind yeah. of – that's the dynamic they're going for. Yeah, we've seen him in – it's funny because he was in Point Break and, of course, Tony Stark's nickname for uh, Thor was Point Break. So. Oh, with the remake Point Break? Uh, I guess so, yeah. Uh, home and away. Uh, he's also oh. in, uh, you know, Hacksaw Ridge, that sort of thing. But yeah, very smooth character in this, and he does have a, a kind of a, a logical by his lights reason for being a villain. Nah, you know? I nah. I'm not redeeming I call, him. I'm just I call saying. BS. I okay. I honestly I didn't. I was like, I don't understand what. What's your motivation again? What what what? <laughs> holy, just just totally holy. But yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. look, it, I'm I'm happy to brush it aside. It didn't. It wasn't, you know, too sticky. Yeah. Oh, and um, uh, Aaron, <laughs> Aaron Glenane plays Beaver Baker, mm. who's uh, one of the uh, the officers aboard the the, yeah. the, the platform, the missile platform, uh, played by Aaron Glenane. Uh, sorry, Aaron Glenane is an actor and writer known for Snowpiercer, yeah. uh, amongst other things. And uh, Mayan Meta plays Corporal Raul Shah, a uh, New Zealand actor who was actually born in India and done quite a few different things, but probably no, most notable for being a stand-up comic and being in Power Ranger Dino Fury. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a zero-G thing. That's why we notice these actors. Uh, and Riss Muldoon plays uh, Lieutenant Colonel Clark Marshall, mm. a veteran Aussie actor, writer and director, so many different things. Farscape back in the day, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, and he is who we've got to give us a bit of a track here. Um, can we go put a track here? Yeah, we'll just play a little bit of this. Okay. I, I just play, want this one just because it's kind of silly. Mm-hmm. But he did a um, – he was in play school and so he did <laughs> – he did a, a, a kid's album. And this one's called uh, Give Me the iPad. So it's like a, a kid in a car sort of <laughs> being obnoxious. Me. I don't know. It's a musical connection. Hi, I'm Jannie Wirtz, fantasy author and artist, and whether you walk in the shadows or the light, you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Yeah, perfect is the enemy of good is the album. Riz Muldoon, who's in Matthew Roller's Interceptor movie, was the singer, and the track was <laughs> Give Me the iPad. You know, bratty kid in a, a car on a, a family trip. Something like that. And I just played that because I could. Because <laughs> it's Zero G. We do what Zero we like. G, yeah. Well, there's not a soundtrack for Interceptor that's dropped yet. So Yeah. So some thoughts yes. about Interceptor. Uh, well, the sets are first rate, or the set. Yep. And I'm not exactly sure how much of it is CGI. Mm. It seemed quite a practical set, really. Maybe just some elements they added in. I would have liked to have seen a bit more weathering on it because it's out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Mm. But other than that, it was very believable. And, like, see, this is some people forget about Matthew Riley's writing. He's very locational. Yeah. He will give you maps and yeah, then he will yeah, use yeah. that. And I, I'm sure he maps it out in his own head and, and on paper to work out, hey, we've got this and that. And, mm. and I actually really appreciate that. That procedural in his action stories is great. Yeah. I, I am a fan of some of his books, not all of them, but mm-hmm. some of them, mm-hmm. as I've said before. And, of course, we have interviewed him twice on the show. Yeah. Uh, and he's a great guy, actually. He's, he's really switched on and he's very geeky. He's I old, love that. He, owns a, <laughs> he, he drives a DeLorean, for God's sake. Oh, really? He has, he has <laughs> hand Solo and Carbonite. 
Not actually Harrison Ford, but, you know, one of those things. Full size. Yeah, I'm wow. God, good for him. Yeah, so he's one of us, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other things that I thought, um, why is the closest SEAL team 90 minutes away? Yeah. Why isn't there a SEAL team stationed on this very important <laughs> asset? So many questions, yeah. yeah. They could have done something like it's a period a period of, of quiet in world affairs and politics mm. and, and things have been written down. Just a, li- a little bit of that sort of stuff sure. would have given us some. Yep. Uh, there's a medium plot twist in the film that's entirely predictable. Yep. Um, the As we were saying, the Chris Hemsworth uh, cameo is too much. Too much. Too Wait. Much. And it takes you out of it because it's hitting a comedy note and it just doesn't fly with the tone of what else is going on. They should have used models for the missiles. Ah, yes, the two CGI. Yeah, two CGI. Uh, but the And the music is just too relentless. They needed some light and shade. I know yeah. they're trying to get you the... Tense. Get your heart hammering yeah. and all of that. And it does, but there's just too much of it. You need to back off a little bit. Yeah. Uh, full marks for the sets and the computer screens in the control room. Yeah. I really noticed yeah. that they were great. Yeah. So well done. Well, from the sounds of it, he pays attention to those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah. So would have, yeah. Yeah. As a, as a directorial debut, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. You think about it, to do something like that off out of the gate. And I, I, I enjoyed it. Like I'm going to say I wanted to see it through. I wanted to see what was going to happen. I was enjoying the action. For me, I appreciate that it's a bottle film, but when it's a bottle film, you need to have a great script and you really need to feel a good rapport between such a small cast. And for me, just some of the interactions just fell a bit flat Um, and that that really took me out of it. I think I could appreciate the action, which is what got me through, but some of it, the characters are paper thin and there's some unearned emotional scenes that just didn't hit the note for me. And so that lack of rela- some relationship building or chemistry, which they try to bank on, like they try to kind of breed the rewards from something that hasn't quite been built yet. So that lack of authentic motivation also made it feel a bit plot holy to me. But those are fairly minor gripes considering the kind of film it is. And I think it delivers on a lot of lot more than where it falls short for this kind of film. Could he reach the level of, of doing a, a die-hard kind of film? I reckon he's got the potential. I think he needs other people to have faith in him to collaborate on mm. some of those because he can't do everything. I no. think that he has clear strengths and I think that if there's some pe- – I mean, maybe that's what the other writer was for, but, like, maybe just some – Adding in a little bit more of the light and shade, like you mentioned, a little more character building, a little bit more emotional character tension, plus the action. I reckon he could. There's a great film down the line directed by him, mm. but I think it's maybe going to need some other voices in there. That's my thought. Mm. Yeah, for fifteen million dollars for a first feature. Oh, good on him. Honestly, I applaud him for self-publishing in the first instance and keeping on pursuing um, mm. the stuff he wants to make and do. And Good for him, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's about it for Zero G for today. Mm-hmm. And anyone who hears the word interceptor from of a certain age group will want to hear the theme from Jerry Anderson's UFO show. And this one has uh, some of the bells and whistles from that, including some dialogue. And it's from an, an artist called FAB, mm-hmm. and it's from Power TV themes. And I just thought, I can't, I can't resist playing this. All right, that's it for Zero G for today. Thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, mm-hmm. and also Joe Brunatic is coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. 
G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.